I'm going to say that one more time. I think it's on the screen behind me. But we're going to be looking at the God who is supreme, sovereign, and most powerful. Um, I'm not going to go in this field of what we're doing right now other than to say this is the fifth sermon in our summer theological series answering the question of who is God. Uh, And in this sermon, no different than the other ones, uh, these topics are weighty topics. Uh, They're difficult topics, especially when we get to the idea of God's sovereignty. We're going to look at kind of a question that kind of plays into understanding God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And in that, I'm going to explain different terms that have nothing to do with sovereignty or supreme or most powerful. And so there's a lot of questions that could arise. And if they do, my encouragement would be, if you're here, to reach out to me or to reach out in community group. Or if you're a part of the church and you're, you're watching this or you listen to the podcast in just a little bit, uh, my, my encouragement to you would be reach out to me, ask questions. If you're watching this and you have nothing to do with Redeemer outside of watching this right now, uh, one, I would encourage you to come and join us. But two, if you have questions, shoot the message in the Facebook message and I will answer the questions the best I can. Because the reality is as we try to understand who is God, this is something that we will do for eternity. Uh, as we take our last breath and we are in eternity with God forever in heaven, um, we're going to spend an eternity long trying to fathom who God is, and we will never make it there. And so we're certainly not going to answer these questions in 10 weeks of 45-minute sermons, but we're going to try our best this morning to look at the God who is supreme, sovereign, and most powerful. Now, with all that being said, um, this topic really goes hand in hand with last week's topic. Last week, we looked at the God who knew, knows, and decrees. Okay, And so we looked at the idea that God knew what was going to happen. He knows what's happening now. And he, did, he knows those things because he decreed those things. And the reason why his decree is so significant is because he is supreme, because he is sovereign, and because he is most powerful. So what God decrees comes about, why? Because God is supreme, sovereign, and most powerful. And so the topics kind of go hand in hand, and that's why I placed this section right after last week's is because after this, we're going to go back, uh, we're going to go and look at some more uh, moral or emotional attributes of God. We're going to look at His holiness. We're going to look at His purity. We're going to look at His uh, righteousness. We're going to look at His love, His compassion, His wrath. We're going to look at all of those things as we move past some of these incommunicable and even more difficult topics to understand. Now, the sermon will be broken up very simply as... The title is, we're going to look at first, the God who is supreme, second, the God who is sovereign, and third, the God who is most powerful. Now, I'm going to be honest, the main chunk of our message this morning will come from the God who is sovereign. And you're going to see why in just a little bit, but very plainly, it's because supreme is who God is, and the way in which he displays his supreme nature is through his sovereignty and his power. And the power is not something that we push back against. We know God is powerful. We've already looked at God as a God who does not change and a God who creates. And so we're not going to push back naturally against the power of God. And we're not going to push back against the supreme nature of God. Because as the kids and I, the boys and I were looking at this morning, what is the first three commandments? Is that we would know that God is the one true God that we would avoid craving or idolatry and that we would avoid um, and that we would treat his name with fear and reverence. And so we know God as a supreme God that is greater than all. So we're going to stand in the sovereignty and ask the question, what does sovereignty really mean? And then we're going to try to answer, does sovereignty change or void the responsibility of man? And so we're going to look at the, all three of these, but I will say on the front end that the middle one, the middle one will be probably the greatest time in which we will take together. With that being said, let's pray together, and then we're going to begin by looking at the God who is supreme. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you. 
God, my prayer now is that as we approach your word, God, that we would allow it to mold us. God, that we wouldn't take verses that are just separated from its context and try to make our thoughts around them. But God, we would do our best to look at them in context and understand that you are a God who is supreme, sovereign, and most powerful. God, you spoke in things created. God, you told your your servant Moses to put a staff down and the oceans split. God, you told the same man to hit a rock and water came gushing out of it. At the voice of your son, men was raised from the dead. Lame walked. Blind saw. God, you are supreme and you are sovereign. And you're more powerful than any other creature that has ever and could ever exist plainly because you are the one who creates it all. We love you. We praise you. And we pray that you would be with us in this time. You would give us the ability to understand your word better. But God, more importantly, that we would know you better and fall in love with you more. And God, that this would lead us to worshiping you, praying to and serving you greater. We love you and we praise you. In your son's holy name, amen. As we look at the idea of the God who is supreme, there's a guy named Martin Luther. Um, you may know of Martin Luther uh, primarily because he's, the, the, he's the, the monk that kind of jump-started the Reformation around 500 years ago. He, after the Reformation happened, he wrote this letter to Erasmus, which is another theologian of his day and time. And he says this. He says, your thoughts of God are too human. And this was meant as a jab at Erasmus because Martin Luther was just this normal, everyday guy. And Erasmus was a very educated man. Now, Martin Luther certainly was a monk. He committed his life to the study of Scripture. But Erasmus, he was professionally trained in all of those things. And so he kind of throws this jab at Erasmus because you'd have to know that Martin Luther, though a a solid believer in Christ, was a very uh, strong opinionated and very uh, brash in the way in which he communicated. So he, he, he kind of jabs at Erasmus. But the reality that of that is we are in the same boat. See, he, what he said was, your thoughts of God are too human. And if we're going to be honest, our thoughts of God are too human as well. We don't understand or comprehend or even acknowledge God as God in the way in which we should. And that's not only an issue that's been going on for since... Martin Luther, that's not only an issue that's happened in theological circles and in just regular circles or in Christian circles or uh, just worldly circles. That's happened for a very long time. Like, look at Psalms 50, 21. Now, just like previous sermons, I've got like 20 verses. They're not on the screen. So if you just want to jot, jot them down or if you just want a PDF of my sermon, I will email it to you. Um, it, Psalms 50, 21 says this. These things you have done. And I have been silent. It, you thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay charge before you. This is certainly a man writing this, but in the nature of who God is. And the reality here is that we think of ourselves much like God sometimes. So our view of God is limited to who we are and we cannot truly comprehend who God is. So when we think of God's supreme nature and his sovereign nature and the most powerful nature of who he is, we cannot do this in the context of our own ability and our own knowledge, but we have to do so based on his authority because God is a God who reveals himself. So we begin by looking at the supreme nature of God. We see that he is almighty and separate. That God is separate from creation. He's infinite distant from men and the mightiest creatures of all of the world. Isaiah 64 a says, But now, O Lord, you are, fa- you are our Father, we are clay, and you are our potter. We are all the works of your hand. God is separate from us and greater than us in every fashion of, the, of our lives. This moment in which Isaiah is writing, he compares our relationship to God as the potter and the clay. And that's a hobby that I have always desired to get to start up, but it's very expensive to do that. Um, but in my house, as all of you know, we have two co- coffee cups that I have bought in the last two years. 
And the next time me and Sarah go to Mentone, I will buy a third one. And every time we go after, I will buy a fourth one. And, and, and so on and so forth. But it's a handmade coffee cup. And I have two of them. I have one that's just round base at the bottom and one that's a skinny base at the bottom because it fits in the, co- in the cup holder of my car. And it fits in the cup holder of the, co- the cup holder in my recliner. And I, I love both of those cups. But when that lady or that man, I don't know who made it, was making that and, and it's twisting and all of those things, that coffee cup didn't say, I want to look like this or I want to look like that. In all reality, the, the person making that coffee cup made it look like the way he made it. We cannot talk to God and back to God as if we are on equal grounds as him. Just like that coffee cup could not logically or ability-wise talk back to its maker, we can talk back to our maker, but we cannot question who God is or the decision God's make because he is the potter and we are the clay. God is separate from us and he is almighty. First Chronicles 29, 11 through 12 says, Yours, O Lord, is greatness and the power and the glory and the victory of your majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, your rule over all, in your hand and power and might, and in your hand is, is to make great things and give strength to all. Second Chronicles 26 is, and, and said, O Lord, God our Father, or not God in heaven, you rule over all kingdoms of all nations, your hand or power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Or Job twenty three twelve says, I have departed from the commandments of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than the portion of food. God is separate from us and he is almighty and we are dependent upon him. And because God is supreme, because he is almighty, because he is separate, because he is the greatest. As I was teaching through Hebrews at a ministry here in Columbus uh, in the morning times on Wednesdays, I was teaching through Hebrews. And the, the, the common theme that I try to relate to those gentlemen was that Jesus is the goat. He's the greatest of all time. And that's an, obviously a sports reference. The reality is that God is the greatest. He is the most supreme. He is separate from all creation. He is greater than all creation. There is no one that would change him or make him surrender his power. God is supreme. A.W. Pink was a... Uh, an amazing theologian that really writes some fantastic work on the attributes of God as well as the depravity of man and even some commentaries on Hebrews that are fantastic. He writes this. And in writing this, he's just kind of explaining that because God is supreme, God can do what God wants to do. And the reason why I want to quote him here is because he's really just explaining Scripture. He's just giving examples of scriptures that I thought was so uh, elegant and so uh, greatly said that I wanted to reproduce it and write it in my own way, but I couldn't just do it justice. So I'm just going to quote him. He says, God's supreme over his works. His hands is vividly duplicit in scripture. In inanimate matter, irrational creatures all perform the maker's bidding. At his pleasure, the Red Sea divided and the water stood up as walls in Exodus 14. The earth opened her mouth and the guilty rebels went down alive into the pit. Number 16. When he so ordered, the sun stood still in Joshua 10. And on another occasion went backwards 10 degrees on a dial of Ahaz in Isaiah 38, 8. To exemplify his supremacy, he made ravens carry food to Elijah in 1 Kings 17. Iron to, iron to swim on the top of water in 2 Kings 6.5. Lions to tame when Daniel was to cast into the den. Fire to burn not when the three Hebrews were flung into the flames. Thus, whatever the Lord pleased that he did, he in heaven. And on earth and in the seas and the deep places, Psalms 135.6. The reality is God is almighty. God is supreme. God is separate. So God does as God wants to do. And we are the potter. He is the potter and we are the clay. And who are we to talk back to God? God is supreme and God does as he pleases. Now, 
The question then is what does it mean that God is sovereign? What does that really mean? Because we say that a lot. There's actually a song that I find much joy in and I love by Beautiful Eulogy called Sovereign. It's a fantastic song. It's a song that I've leaned into in the darkest and hardest moments of my life. It's the song that I played constantly when I lost my grandmother a few years ago. It's a, a song that finds much joy in because knowing who God is and knowing God is sovereign, it brings a comfort to us. But why does it bring a comfort to us? And we're going to look at that together. But I, I kind of explained this earlier, but I want to go back and make sure I'm clear. God is supreme. And the way in which we can almost identify and define God's sovereignty is that it is the exercise of his supremacy. That sovereignty is the exercise of his supremacy. Because God is supreme, he sovereignly does as he pleases, and that is good for us and great for him. But to make that a little more clear of what sovereignty really means, it means that God is subject to no one, influenced by no one, absolutely uh, undefended, that God does as he pleases and only as he pleases and always as he pleases. God is sovereignly in control of all things. Isaiah 46, 10 says, declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purposes. Daniel 4, 35 All inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the hosts of the heavens, among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand and say to him, what have you done? Think about the audacity of that. What how how crazy must we be when we respond to God of what have you done? Why did you do this? If God is God, if God is supreme, if God is sovereign, if God is a God who knew, knows, and decrees, if God is a God that is immutable, if God is a God who creates, if God is a God who reveals, then how are we to be creatures that question what God does? Certainly that does not soften the, bold, the, the, the realities and difficult moments of life. But if God is truly sovereign, then God is the God who does. And he does as he pleases. Ephesians 1.11, we've read this before in this series, but this is great for this topic as well. It says, in him we have attained an inheritance, having predestined according to the purposes of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That God works all things according to the counsel. In thinking of this, Charles Spurgeon, which is uh, one of my favorite uh, theologian and pastors, um, really in more modern time, it's, he's, he's been dead for a while, but he's still more modern. So much so that if Lottie or if Isabella would have been a boy, uh, that boy's name would probably be Henry Haddon. Now, Lottie would have certainly been Henry Haddon. And this, if, if Isabella was a boy, it probably would have had the name Haddon in it because this guy's name is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Uh, that's the, the bobblehead in my office that looks like Mr. Caleb, okay? Uh, Charles Spurgeon is one that I really enjoy. Um, and this is what he says about this topic. He says, There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe trials, they believe that the sovereignty has ordained their affections, the sovereignty overrules them, and that the sovereignty will sanctify them. I'm going to read more, but that's certainly true. That if we truly trust in God as the God who is sovereign over all things, then we know that God is sovereignly doing something in all circumstances. And as we are his children, it is good for us. Now, maybe it's good for us in the sense that Isaiah 53, when God is talking to his people, he says in 53, 11, that I know the plans for you that will prosper you and grow you. But then, then, then right after he says these words, they go into exile for 70 years. Maybe that's the good that we have to go through. It's difficult seasons. But if God is sovereign and God is good, then he is going to work out all good things for his will and those who love him. Scripture is clear about that. 
We find rest and joy in this. But his quote goes on to say, and Spurgeon was a man of a lot of words, not few words, so I'm skipping part of this section. He goes on to say, On the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by the worldlings. Men will allow God to be everywhere except for his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds, to make stars. They will allow him to be in his uh, almonry, to dispense his alms and bestow his bounties. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures, then gnash their teeth. What is he getting at there? What does he mean by this? Well, he says worldlings. So he's saying, look, the world balks at this and they reject this. But A.W. Pink says something similar. And I think it's so important that we understand this, that this is not only a rejection of worldlings, but this is also a rejection oftentimes of Orthodox Christians where we push back against the true nature of God's sovereignty. A.W. Pink says this is, but when we are living in a day, now, A.W. Pink died a long time ago, and I would argue that we're living a day that is even greater at this. That we're living in a day when even the most orthodox seem afraid to admit the proper godhood of God. They say that the, to press this sovereignty of God excludes human responsibility. Whereas human responsibility is based upon di- di- divine sovereignty, and it is a product of it. What I mean by what he means by this and what I want us to understand as we transition into the main question here is that so often even Orthodox Christians and even solid Christians. And I would argue that we can separate on this and we can disagree on this. And it's not that huge of a deal, but it can be. Because so often we have people that push back against the sovereignty of God, especially over salvation. But the reality is the sovereignty of God is not at odds with that of the responsibility of man. So to answer the question, to present the question and to answer it, the way I worded the question specifically is, is human responsibility incompatible with the sovereignty of God? I'm going to say that again because it's not on the screen and it's a long sentence. Is human responsibility incompatible with the sovereignty of God? The answer in short is no. But let's look at why. Because if I say no, it's not, and then we move on. If you wonder, how is that so, and you're not looking at my notes, you may say, how is it so? So let's look at it. And the way we look at this, um, and this is why I told you we're going to get into new terms and different terms, and I don't expect you to learn, uh, memorize all this, and that's fine. We look at two things. We look at the immutable standing in which God created and the conditional footing in which God created. And what I mean by this is immutable means that it cannot or will not change. That God created certain beings in such a way that they would be in that place forever. For example, we're going to look at angels. We're going to look at who angels are and what they are in some ways that are going to help us understand the immutable standing and the conditional footing. For example, the immutable standing of angels. 1 Timothy chapter 5.21. It says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging doing what from partiality. Now, this verse really is not important into the idea of who angels are, except for the phrase there, the elect angels. And by the elect angels, what he means here is a little different than humanity because we do see in Scripture where we see this election or predestination or whatever word you want to place there. So there's a reality of that for the humans, but for angels it was different. For angels, we see that there's also angels who sinned against God. 2 Peter 2, 4. For if God did not spill angels who, when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to change of gloomy darkness and kept them until judgment. That then at some point in human history, in angel history, that the angels sinned against God and some angels did not. Angels are different than us. They do not have the same form of free will as us. So what makes angels different in the elect angels and the angels who sinned is that God created some angels to be immutable standing. That he created them in such a way that they would be with him and for him forever. Think of those who are around the throne room of God, singing, holy, 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 holy is the Lord Almighty. 
in the presence of God, certainly there is no way for them to turn away from God. But for those who sinned against God, he placed them on what we refer to as a conditional footing. And footing is very similar to that of construction. I don't know if any of you have ever done construction. I certainly have not. But I know enough about it to know that when you're laying down any kind of foundation or if you put up a trailer or a shed or if you put down a block foundation instead of a concrete foundation, but even a concrete foundation oftentimes has it, you have this footing. And this footing was purpose was to make sure that the, the, the building itself would not move. Because what it was, it was the foundation in which was holding everything up. And when I say that God created us and placed us in conditional footing, as I'm going to say again in just a moment, what this means is that God created beings, angels specifically here, and he created them in such a way that they were placed into a place in a time in which they had the ability, they had the responsibility to do what is right or to do what is wrong. So it's conditional, but that footing found their foundation. So these angels who had sinned against God, their conditional footing led to them running towards sin and away from God. So to make this make sense before we get into conditional footing in a little bit more of a detail, that God created some creatures to be exactly firm in what he called them to do, what he wanted them to do, and he has sovereignly placed them in that ability, that that is what they will do. That is all they will do. They will follow God in whatever he tells them to do because he is sovereign. But in his sovereignty, he has also created individuals and he provided them for a conditional founding. That he placed them in such a way that they would be responsible to him. They would be responsible for their actions and accountable to God. That in God's sovereignty, he made it so that man would have some form of free will. That man would have some form of responsibility. So that's when we get into the question of Adam and Eve and Christ. So first and foremost, let's look at the conditional footing of the first Adam. So God created Adam. He formed him from dirt. He breathed in his mouth. He took a rib from him. He gave it to Eve. He created them. And in creating them, he placed them on this conditional footing that was based upon this. And I, I thought about when I was writing this, I thought about the video you sent me of Eve eating the fruit. Uh, anyway, um, in when he placed them there, he placed them with one charge, one charge and one charge alone, and do not eat of the fruit of the good and evil. One opportunity to do what is right and to do what is wrong. And now it was on their, their end. It was up to them at that point. See, I would, this isn't a theological term, so don't quote me on this term here. This is one that I've said before, and most of you probably heard me say it. It's that Adam and Eve had ultimate free will. They could sin or they could not sin. What I mean by that is, let's look at Romans 5, 12 through 14. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even to those whose sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Adam was a, a type of the one who was to come. His transgressions were different than our transgressions. The reason why his transgressions are different than our transgressions is because Adam was a representative of humanity. That he represented us. And regardless if we wanted his representation or not, he represented us. Okay? And so as a representative of humanity, he sinned. And when he sinned, he imputed sin onto all individuals who would ever live. Adam and Eve had ultimate free will. It's a word that I've kind of coined. It's, and maybe somebody else has before. I'm not sure. But ultimate free will meaning that they had total free will. They had the ability to choose good or choose evil. To choose right or choose wrong. To obey or disobey. They had that ability. We don't have that ability. When Isabella is born, and that's because she's the most recent baby that I know. When Isabella is born, eventually she is going to lie when she's not hungry. She's going to do something that is wrong. Lottie is at the point where she lies a lot. Um, we all sin, right? I didn't have to teach any of my children to do wrong things. We naturally find ourselves there. We're sinful people. We're depraved people. 
because sin was imputed to us. We're wicked. We're not good people that do bad things. We're bad people that sometimes do good things. The reality is this is because the imputation of sin. So we're different than Adam and Eve in the sense that they could have chose to do good and do good alone. We have sin nature. The same A.W. Pink guy says, Now God did not place Adam upon a footing of conditional creature responsibility because it was right. He should place him. God didn't, now I'm going to explain this. God didn't put Adam in this position of conditional footing because that was the right thing for God to do. God did not have to create us that way. God could have created us in an immutable standing to where they would have not sinned and they would have just glorified God forever. But, as this guy, as A.W.P. goes on to say, he says, no, it was right because God did it. God did not even give creatures beings because it was right for him to do so, because he was under any obligation to create, but it was right because he did so. God is sovereign. His will is supreme. The reason in which God placed us in conditional footing was not because it was the right thing for him to do and he had to do it, but because God desired to do it. And because he desired to do it, it was the right thing to do. God does not make decisions as we make decisions. Starting to work out. And the reason I'm working out is so I'll be healthy. The reality of that example is very simple. Is it's the right thing for me to do, so therefore I'm doing it. God does not make decisions like that. God made the decision to place us on conditional footing so that we would be responsible and have some form of free will So because that's what he desired. And the way in which God created us was on that footing because he is sovereign. God is sovereignly over our conditional footing. And we see that. In the first man, Adam. But we also see another form of Adam that was created on a conditional footing as well. Not created, but born on a uh, conditional footing. As you continue in Romans chapter 5, 15 through 17, it says, But the free gift is not that that of the trespass. For if many have died through one man's trespass, much more have been the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that the one of Jesus Christ abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following the trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift of the following many trespasses brought to justification. For if, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through one man, much more will receive the abundance of grace and free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus himself was born in a conditional footing. Jesus was placed in the same conditional footing. He was made under the law to redeem those who were under the law. The greatest difference, though, is that he did not fail like all others. For he did not and could not fail, for he is God in the flesh and the one who knew no sin that died for the ransom of many. That Jesus himself, taking on the law, was born on this same conditional footing to where the same as Adam's. To where he could choose good or choose bad. To where he could do what is right and do what is wrong. Now we could get into the hyperstatic union and we could talk about if, if Jesus could really sin because of his God nature, or could he not sin because of his God nature? Or we could get into, could his human nature sin and his God nature not? And and we're not going to dive into that. Regardless, what we see is that there was a second Adam, which is Jesus, that died as representation of all. That his death, his blood, his sacrifice was sufficient for all who would believe and trust in him. That's where the good news is. It's found in this second Adam, in this conditional footing. 18 through 21 of Romans 5 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation to all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification of the life of all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that many were made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abound all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also may reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus our Lord. There's good news in the conditional footing of man. 
Man was created, Adam was created and placed on this conditional footing where he had ultimate free will, where he could choose right from wrong, and he chose wrong. He chose wrong. He sinned against God. He rebelled against God. And as our representatives, we are now born into sin, where we now are the same, bear the same guilt and responsibility to our sins. We are responsible. God is certainly sovereign, but God sovereignly placed us in a, into a position of responsibility that does not over, uh, overturn his sovereignty. But in the second Adam, we see another man, a man named Jesus, born under the law, born in this conditional footing that could choose right from wrong, and he chose right. He was without sin, he was without error, he was without fault, and he died a death we all deserved, and so given us abundant life. Where sin reigned, death reigned, but where grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God's sovereignty provided a conditional footing where man is born responsible to their error and their sin. Very simply put, as I started this section, God's sovereignty does not, does not contradict the responsibility of man. But rather, in God's sovereignty, he has created a creature that is responsible to him and being responsible to him, it has led to many who would die to their sins and spend eternity away from him, and many who would be redeemed through Jesus, the second Adam. And the reality is we looked at last week, God knows who those people are. He knew, he knows, he decrees. God is sovereign, and as old A.W. Pink said a little bit ago, as I quoted him, God did not place Adam upon footing of conditional creature responsible because it was right, so he did it. No, it was right because God did it. God is a God who does what is right in his own eye. He is supreme and he is doing his will. And before I even move to the power of God, where I want us to land and find much joy in, it's very simply this. God is a God that created us with free will to an extent, created us responsible to him. So if we sin and we don't come to Jesus, we're responsible. We will take judgment for that. If we sin and we come to Jesus, we give all glory to God because God is the one who's redeemed us in Christ Jesus. And if God knows, knew and decrees, God knows exactly who's going to be in each of those boats. There's no way we can get around the sovereignty and the knowledge of God like that. We could try to argue it and debate it and all of those things. But if God knows, God knows. And if God decrees, God decrees. God is infinite. But the reality is we're finite. God knows, we don't. God saves, we don't. And in God's sovereignty, not only has he created us responsible, but God in his sovereignty provides a means to an end to accomplish his will. When God desires to save someone, he uses men and women like you and I to proclaim the gospel so that that person can be converted through the power of Christ. So certainly, certainly God is supreme. God is sovereign. God knows. He knew. He decreed. God is redeeming. God is saving. God is bringing the elect to himself. God is doing all of those amazing things. But that does not and will never negate the fact that we are called to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. But what it does, and kind of with this last thought with most powerful what it does is provides us a joy and a comfort in doing what God has called us to do. Because if God is supreme, and if God is sovereign, displaying his supreme nature, 
He is also displaying his supreme nature by being most powerful. And if God is most powerful, and if God is saving the people for himself, again, guess what? God will save those people regardless. So, let's look at this. We're going to look at God that is the God who is most powerful. We're going to look at it in three ways. We're going to see his power displayed in three ways. And I'm just going to read these scriptures, and we're going to talk about it briefly. And then we're going to go to some applications quickly. Since the power of God is, is not something we tend to push back against. And I said this earlier. It's not something we push back against. So I'm going to breeze through these three ways in which we see the power of God displayed. It's, it's not that it's not important. It's that we know this well. We trust in this already. So we spent the bulk of our time understanding the sovereignty and the responsibility of man. The first way we see in the, the power of God, as we've already looked at this sermon series, is the power of God in creation. Psalms 89, 11 through 12. And there's a lot of verses you can look at God who creates. Uh, I thought about Job. I thought about Psalms. I thought about Proverbs. It was a lot. But 89, 11 through 12 says this. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north, north from the south, you have created them. Tabar and Hermon joyously praise you. That all is the Lord's. God is the creator of all things. And that is displaying his power even today. But not only is the creation a displaying of his power, but God's power is displayed in preservation. In Hebrews 1.11 says, In the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I want to focus on this middle part. It says, He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Think about it this way. Uh, I may need y'all's help, actually. Um, How many chromosomes do we have in our body? 23? 23? And they're in twos, so it's actually 50. No, 21. I don't know. We have so many chromosomes, right? But if you ever thought about, think about a plant. We'll go that route. How does a plant produce food? Photosynthesis. Photosynthesis. Okay, so the seed, okay? You plant a seed, and there's something deep down within that seed that makes it turn into a plant one day, right? You put it in the dirt. It, then water comes and then roots come from it. And then it got, starts going up and sunlight hits it. And that somehow makes it make food for itself to reproduce and to grow. Think about our bodies. Our, our bodies need air. And then our bodies also produce uh, uh, carbon dioxide. And if it was reversed, we would die. But plants itself produce oxygen but need carbon dioxide to live. They would argue that if the, if the earth was just like a few inches closer to the sun, then we would all burn alive. God upholds all of these things. He preserves all of these things. He's not only the God who creates, but he's the God who maintains. Physical, but also spiritual. He's the one that saves us, but he preserves us. So we see his power displayed in that, but we also see his power displayed in judgment. Now, I really thought about some Isaiah because I've been reading through Isaiah and God lays down the law. And then you could even go to Acts and you could see where Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit. And God just like cuts that light switch and they drop. And then, then the wife comes in, God cuts the light switch again, she drops. And we see the, the power of God displayed through the judgment of God. But Ezekiel 22, 14 through 16, uh, 14 through 16 says, can, you, can your courage endure? Can your hands be strong in the day that I shall deal with you? I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. I will scatter you among the nations and disperse you through the countries. And I will consume your uncleanliness out of you. And you will be profound, profaned by your own doing in the sight of nations. And you shall know that I am the Lord. This, the God would take rebellious and wicked men to deliver his judgment on Israel. To, to display their sinfulness and rejection of him time in and time out. God is a God who displays his power in judgment and will ultimately display his power in judgment one last time before the end of the world. And that's through the last judgment. And we'll see his power in full fledge in that moment.
God's most powerful. There was no one greater. There was no one close to the power of God. So often in cartoon characters, we see this kind of comparison between God and Satan, almost as if they're in this battle against one another, and there was this equal battle. But it's not. God created Satan. God allowed Satan to fall. Satan is not even on the same playing field as the ability and the power of God. God is most powerful. God is supreme. God is sovereign. And we can rest in that. But what does this mean for us long term? As we're walking through this study, the things that I want us to think about and I want this to lead us to do is to know God better, first and foremost. Knowing that God is supreme, sovereign, and most powerful helps us understand Him better. We're not going to do that perfectly. We're not going to do that completely. But it leads us to know Him better. So when we look at these three doctrines, what I want us to understand most most importantly than anything about God in this is there is no one, no one, no one that is more supreme or greater or more sovereign or more powerful than God. That God is it. He is the one true God. There is no one greater or higher. He is God. And if God is God, then when we pray to him, then it praying to him brings over comfort and a joy. In Jesus' instructions to his disciples, he says, Not thy will be done, but not my will be done, but thy will. And as we pray to God. And as we pray to God, understanding that he is supreme and sovereign and most powerful, we pray to him, certainly petitioning for things in our lives. But certainly that is not what we begin in prayer. That is what we end up in prayer as we depend on and we sit at the feet of and trust in the God who is supreme, who is sovereign, who is most powerful. For example, and I've said this to you guys many times before, every night before bed, or most nights before bed, every night before bed I pray for the kids, but most nights I pray this specific prayer over the boys and Lottie and now Isabella, is that God, as they grow older, will you teach them much about their sin, but even more about your grace. And that is a simple prayer of saying, God, save them, redeem them. And if we think about our lives here at Redeemer, we often pray for people that we want to see come to Jesus. And why do we pray for a God to, to God to do that? Why do we pray to God when we're having financial struggles? Why do we pray to God when we're having difficulties or hardships? Why do we pray to God when we just don't understand things that are going on in our lives? It's because God is supreme. And because God is sovereign and God is most powerful. And so as we pray to God, what we're saying is, God, I trust you to do these things. And if God is not supreme and God is not sovereign, then it would be worthless for us to pray to him about those things. If God was just one of us, then it would be no different than saying, Aaron, As my kids get older, will you teach them more about their sin and even more about God's grace? Certainly you may try to do that while you're here, right? But the reality is it's insignificant for you, right? Because you're not the one that saves. God is the one who saves. The reason why I pray that as a father, it's because I know that I can't save anyone. I especially can't save my children. To worship him. This is simple. If God is supreme, he deserves our worship. If God is supreme and he's the greatest, then there's no one else we should worship. If God is so much greater than us, if he is the potter and we are the clay, then we glorify him in all that we do. And if God is supreme and sovereign and most powerful, if God is supreme and sovereign over salvation and going to redeem his people, then we serve him. We share the gospel. We trust in God to do the work in their lives. And as they come to know Jesus, as we commit our lives to discipling people, regardless of what it takes away from our schedule, regardless of the difficulties or the hardships, regardless of walking through hard times with people. And when you disciple someone and you pour into them, you're going to walk through hard times with them. And it's not only hard times for them, but as you pouring into them, it's going to take something from you as well. 
Why do all of that? Is because God is supreme. God is sovereign. God's most powerful. And he's going to use that for their good. The person you're helping and the person you're guiding and directing. But ultimately, for his glory, for his honor, for his worship. So very plainly put, if God is supreme, sovereign, and most powerful, We should live as we say yes. And we should trust him. We should know him. We should pray to him. We should worship him. We should serve him. Just a moment, I'm going to pray. You have the opportunity to pray within yourself to this God who is supreme, sovereign, and most powerful. Maybe there's someone you want to pray for that God would redeem. Maybe there's some sin in your life that you're warring with and you want to pray that God would help you fight against it. We're going to sing together. It's going to give you the opportunity to praise him together one last time. And then as we leave here, Aaron's going to read Matthew 28, uh, 18 through 20. And in that, we're going to be commissioned out to go and to be sent. And in being sent, we're going to have the opportunity to serve him and trusting in his power. Let's do that together. Tanaya, go get your mama, please. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you. God, you are certainly supreme and sovereign and all-powerful. God, you you do not do good things because they're good, but God... The things that are good are good because you do them. God, this is a simple truth, but I pray that this would be a truth that would land on us heavily this morning. God, things that are done that is right are done that is right because you are the one doing them. God, we don't understand why we go through hard times. We don't understand why bad things happen. We don't understand why people we love die. We don't understand why uh, some people know you and some people don't. We don't understand why natural disasters happen. We don't understand these things. We can't comprehend these things. God, because we focus so closely to our nose and not to you. God, the words to Erasmus from Luther was your view of God is too human and our view of you are too human. God, let us have a big view of you. Let us have a God view of you. And God, let that lead us to trusting and depending and praying and praising and glorifying and trusting and and serving greater. God, I pray that understanding you better will lead us to greater holiness in you. In your son's holy name, amen.